Welcome to the World Resources Podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton, based in WRI's Europe office in the Netherlands. Today we're looking at the critical role that land use has in environmental issues from biodiversity to climate change. That was the focus of a high-level meeting in London last week, hosted by WRI and the WWF, and featuring a speech by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales. In a moment or two, you'll hear from Paul Pullman, chair of Imagine and former CEO of Unilever. But first, Edward Davey. He's director of geographic deep dives for WRI's food and land use coalition, known as FOLU. I asked him what lay at the core of the land use issue. The top line is that the food and land use system is at least a third of the solution to the global climate crisis, but also the biodiversity crisis. Uh, And yet at the moment, it receives much less attention and climate finance. Um, Something in the order of 3 to 8% of the world's climate finance is spent on food and land use. And just give an idea, if a layman is listening to this, if a layperson is listening to this, and they don't really quite understand what food and land use means, what it translates to in terms of of everyday lives, what particular thing are, uh, are you talking about? Are you talking about farmland or what? A lot of it's about farmland. I mean, the best typology I've seen is in WRI's WRR, the World Resources Report, Creating a Sustainable Food Future. I mean, effectively, there are at least 23 different parts of the food and land use system that require urgent attention. Part of this is about better agriculture and ensuring better yields. Part of it's about reducing food loss and waste. Part of it's about the work that Daniel Vernard and others lead in WRI on shifting diets. But effectively, we need action across the whole of the food and land use system to deliver the, the climate and sustainable development goals. Um, and critically, uh, we need a, a better food and land use system, which also protects and restores ecosystems. Well, one of the people at the high level meeting was Paul Pullman. He's the former CEO of Unilever and he's now the chair of Imagine. And here's what he had to say about what he says is a critical problem, but one that he believes we can solve. Well, the food system goes to the heart of the Sustainable Development Goals, and this is why I'm so passionate about it. Uh, The famous 17 goals, but if you then look at the uh, food system and the overall objective of the Sustainable Development Goals to irreversibly eradicate poverty in a more sustainable and equitable way, you get right away to our food system, which frankly isn't working. You look at the people that are living in poverty, they're usually subsistent monocrop farmers. You look at the areas where there is conflict, there usually are issues of food. You look at the issues of women and and, uh, children, which are more affected by the Sustainable Development Goals. They are usually in areas, stressed areas again, uh, with the food system, where they um, suffer disproportionately uh, versus the rest of the population. So anywhere you look, from climate change goal number 13, to goal number one, poverty alleviation, to goal number two, food security, to goal number 16, conflict and Uh, peace and justice if you want to, it all goes back uh, to the food system that that, uh, runs as a red threat, if you want to, through all of the sustainable development goals. So none of these goals can be achieved with the speed and scale that we need right now if we don't start doing the changes in the food system. What is most attractive to me is continuing to work within the food system to make the changes in the enormous silos that we have there from attacking uh, food waste to scaling up nutrition to working on poverty amongst farmers or obesity on the other side. These are enormous issues that need to be addressed but are addressed within a certain silo approach. Now with the food and land use 
Coalition, what the World Resource Institute is now doing, what we saw here today in London, is to take a holistic approach and try to change the system that we're operating in is the only solution that we have to ensure that we that we guarantee a future now and for generations to come. Now we've been sitting here all day listening to just how complex the problem is. Absolutely. And so many stakeholders from Absolutely. farmers through to consumers, the finance industry, etc., uh, governments. Why is it something that so you know, th that isn't intractable? This seems like a such a complex problem that there isn't just a single lever to pull. What is it that we can do? Where's the action? Well, if you want to change the world, it's not a little bit like Archimedes said, give me a lever and I can tilt the world. Here you need a few levers to tilt the food system. The reason that it is difficult is because it touches everything as we were talking about and, and there is a certain level of complexity. But if you have a system that currently has a cost externalities for society of 12 trillion dollars and if you with a relatively limited investment of between 200 and 450 billion dollars you can create a positive economic effect of four and a half trillion it ought to get more attention and the main attention that we need to give now is not only the transparency which we are increasingly providing to the food system and its inefficiencies but also increasingly attracting the financial world there's enough money in the world half the money in the world is actually zero or negative interest rates they're desperately looking for returns here you have an area of the Sustainable Development Goals that for every dollar invested you get a return that is up to 15 times higher. The reason that the money isn't flowing in as quickly as we would want to is primarily a lack of understanding of the role that our food systems play, that biodiversity plays in our overall economic system. The value of biodiversity, the famous $125 trillion more or less, is only now starting to be understood by companies, by the financial markets. So I think we're on the crutch of this moment where we can perhaps with uh, sufficient uh, force from the private sector create tipping points that also will get the government interested, civil society behind that, to see an accelerated change versus what we've seen today. And what's at stake for the private sector if it doesn't sort out this food problem? Is it, is it just the forests, an ecosystem not hidden away somewhere? Or, or what's at not stake? at all. And it's, a, and it's not in its extreme. What is at stake is the future of humanity. You cannot solve climate change without solving the food sector. This is about 30% of the solution. And we have developed an incredible technology that is very cheap, actually, that is highly technical, doesn't need much maintenance, and over time becomes even better in dealing with climate change. And it's called a tree. And, and uh, we're not just valuing it the way that we should be valuing it. So many of the solutions that we have to make our economic systems function, to make it more inclusive, will derive its answer back to the food system that we are talking at conferences like this. So every company, if you're in the food business right now, and if you take business as usual on the current trend, all the profits in the food business will be wiped out in the next 25 to 30 years. So what is at stake here is actually the future of any of these industries, I would argue. But turning that around and not making it a threat, but turning it into an opportunity, this probably is the biggest economic opportunity that we have in front of us. What's the most difficult part at the end of the day? It's not the data, it's not to see what the economic opportunities are, but it is to build the trust amongst the different stakeholders of this complex value chain to work together in partnership to get these breakthroughs that we're looking for. 
when and where we do that in the different projects in the world, and we've seen enough examples of that, we can get amazing results. But it requires a different level of working together. It requires a different level of transparency and a different level of trust, obviously, that is needed to do that successfully. And that is what we're trying to create with initiatives like the Food and Land Use Alliance, with initiatives here like the Just Transition uh, initiative here launched in the UK and now being rolled out globally. These are very, very important because these are these multi-stakeholder initiatives that get us to operate at a different level than we were before, getting us to change the system versus working in the system. One final question, that is, what is it that you've seen? What single thing have you seen that makes you optimistic that some of these things will happen, that some of these solutions are coming down the track? Well, there are three things that make me optimistic, uh, that we will find things uh, besides the uh, normal answer that every human being will ultimately fight for survival and have common sense at the end of the day, although we haven't seen much of that yet. Um, there is an increasing transparency that allows us to uh, measure impact of everything we do. We now much better understand what is happening than we did before, and that's the first step to reason and reasonable action. And that makes me optimistic. The second thing is that we have a whole new generation coming up. Call it the young or the millennials. They're more purpose-driven. They have a different sense of urgency. They own the future. And that's very energizing to see some of that thinking and business models coming in. And I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And the third reason I'm optimistic is what I mentioned before, that we're at the point right now that the cost of inaction is actually starting to be significantly higher than the cost of action. So even people that don't have the moral force, that might not worry about the 820 million people that go to bed hungry every day, or the 160 million children that are stunted, or the one and a half billion people that um, suffer from malnutrition, if you don't have that moral force, the economic force is starting to take over. That is increasingly getting the interest of the financial market. Just as we see around climate change and decarbonizing portfolios, we will soon see that also in the whole food and land use area, and that's obviously very exciting. Well, you heard it there, Ed. Paul Polman says it's about nothing less than the future of humanity. So let's start at a more basic level. What's the future for the Food and Land Use Coalition following this meeting? The Food and Land Use Coalition is about two years old. We have a number of funders and we're very proud of what we've achieved so far. In particular, I'd like to focus on the work that we are doing in five countries, China, India, Ethiopia, Indonesia and Colombia, where we have country platforms led or co-led by WRI. And it's really in those countries where we're, I think, making the biggest difference. If you really support the Chinese government in its desire to deliver a more sustainable food and land use system, which is deeply felt, then that, of course, has huge implications both for the Chinese, but also for the world at large, given China also has a global footprint in terms of the commodities that it imports. The same story for India, the same for Indonesia. And in Colombia, where we began effectively, you know, the food and land use system is at the heart of the peace process, which the country is continuing to implement. So basically, in my view, every country in the world needs to go on a journey to reform its food and land use system. And in these five countries, plus some work we're doing in the Nordic countries, Australia and the UK, we have, the, we have a prototype about the kind of public-private coalition that you need to build to basically transform or at least significantly reform the food and land use system. So what does the work look like on the ground? Take one of those and explain what follows work is like actually on the ground. I'll start with Colombia because it was the country where we began. 
We've got a wonderful leader in Colombia, Claudia Martinez. She used to be Minister of Environment. She's very well respected. Over the last 18 months, she has convened over 150 actors, government people, private sector people, NGOs, regional leaders, academics. They have together written a roadmap for a new food and land use economy for Colombia, which follows in its structure the Folu Global Report, Growing Better, which sets out a series of really concrete recommendations about what's required to deliver a better, more sustainable, healthier food and land use system in Colombia. Those recommendations have been shared with the president, President Duque, who's very on board, but also with his cabinet. They've also been shared in regional authorities with CEOs of major companies in Colombia. And basically, the, the FOLU Colombia has a vibrant life of its own, working with others, articulating and advocating for a better food and land use system. That same process is underway in different ways in the other four countries that I reference. But what we really need globally, of course, is for every country to go on a journey. And of course, the issues are different in every country. But effectively, across the world, every country has a huge role to play to deliver a better food and land use system. And this fits in with the World Resources Report that you were talking about earlier, the, which in effect is about how we feed a planet that might have 10 billion people on it by 2050 without destroying the resources, the ecosystem, without destroying the climate. That's right. And the WRR is, is a formidable piece of work which really provides the structure and the basis and a kind of methodology by which every country can really work out the impact it's having in terms of its food and land use system and where that country could make the biggest difference. I mean, another, another example fresh in my mind is Indonesia. You know, the country, uh, it's the 11th largest emitter in the world, the 19th largest per capita. Um, you know, it's palm oil it, it is, is, is the primary global source of palm oil in a sense. But the exam question now in Indonesia is whether the country can pursue an alternative development path in the remaining highly forested cover, highly for, high forest cover provinces, including Papua, West Papua, Aceh, and North Kalimantan, and, in, and that's also what FOLU is trying to advocate in that particular country. At the same time, in Indonesia, there is very significant rates of, of malnutrition on the one hand and obesity and diabetes on the other. So we're also making the argument that a better food and land use system is good economics. It reduces the economic impact of the dual, but the double burden. So it sounds as though these are real areas where real progress is being made. What's at stake if progress isn't made in these areas? The, the, the argument the Prince of Wales made in his speech on Thursday the 7th was... There is no outcome in terms of the climate negotiations and the biodiversity negotiations in the so-called 2020 super year without major action on food and land use. And so in a sense, we win or we fail in terms of how successful we are in this global effort to advocate for healthier diets, for reduced food loss and waste, for better agriculture and more intensively, more sustainable, intensified agriculture linked directly to ecosystem conservation and restoration. And effectively, you know, th this will play out next year. It's a 10-year project at least, but the next year will be critical. And in particular, countries, when they come back to Glasgow for the climate discussions next November, December, will be expected to come forward with revised and more ambitious NDCs, nationally determined contributions. And we will be working with countries to ensure that those NDCs are also ambitious on food and land use. And that was Edward Davey of the Food and Land Use Coalition. And before him, the wise words of Paul Pullman, chair of Imagine and former CEO of Unilever. To find out more, go to our website, wri.org. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thank you for listening to WRI's podcast and goodbye for now.